If you have a Bible, if I can encourage you to turn in it to Judges chapter 13, and if you want to use the Bible in front of you there, if you turn to page 213, I think we leak over a verse or two to 214, but 213 is basically where we'll be. Now, we've been working our way through Judges, and as we've worked our way through Judges, quite honestly, it feels like it's just gotten bleak. And as you keep going through Judges and you keep reading it, it just seems to get more bleak, or you could even say more corrupt with each passing chapter. Now, in one sense, we probably shouldn't be surprised by that because, quite honestly, God told us that that's how this book would play out back in Judges chapter 2 and verse 19 when it says this, but whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them, and they did not draw any of their practices or their stubborn ways. A while ago, I, I listened to a podcast, uh, probably two years ago now, I guess I finished listening to it, called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. It's the story of a church that became huge in the greater Seattle area and had impact around the world and then literally collapsed. In some ways, Judges feels like that to me. I mean, the people of Israel enter the promised land with great hope, great possibility. You kind of see they're on the rise. And yet you read the book of Judges and their rise goes up and there's this giant decline. What should have been amazing just seems to keep crashing down. You know, that can be true of us in some ways too. And we can kind of read the book of Judges and see they have this potential and it's like they start up and they come down. And maybe we get to the place of asking ourselves a question, is freedom possible? You know, it was supposed to be for Israel. They were supposed to have this freedom, but they're back in bondage. They're under serving under another country again. Is freedom possible? Is it possible for us to not just rise up a little and crash? Is it really possible for us to know freedom, to, to live in freedom? In a lot of ways this morning, I want us to ask the question, is freedom possible? And here's the quick answer to that question. Yes. Freedom is possible. Why? Why would I say that? How can I say that? I mean, you read this book and they're not getting freer. They seem to be getting more corrupt. It even says that. Why would I say that? Well, because I believe Judges 13 really points us in the direction of freedom and it points us there really from God's perspective. It's God, in essence, telling us, hey, here's how you can be free and here's why you can be free. Really, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. First, we'll talk about why can you and I be free? Why can we say freedom is possible? And then how do we experience it? So let's start by talking about why is freedom possible? Well, let me suggest to you there's three reasons that the first part of Judges 13 is going to point out. And the first reason why freedom is possible is because God is full of grace. You and I can have freedom because of who God is, and he's full of grace grace. And we need to understand something. Grace is not something you and I achieve. It's not something we arrive at. It literally is a gift we receive from God because he's full of grace. Read with me verse 1 of Judges 13 and a little bit of verse 2. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah, 
of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. Now, Judges 13 kind of starts there with kind of with that feel of the cycle of Judges we've seen, right? The people of Israel do the wrong thing. They do evil. They keep that practice. And so as the cycle would unfold, then God delivers them or God puts them into the hand of an enemy. In this case, it's the people of the Philistines, the, the Philistines for 40 years. That's verse 1. Then verse 2 says, hey, there's this guy. There's this guy named Manoah. Now, that kind of gives us a sense. Maybe God's got a new judge, a new deliverer coming. It's bleak, but it's going to get better. But then you got to say, hang on a second. That is a part of the cycle that's mixed. I mean, God is supposed to provide a deliverer, but he's not supposed to do that until they cry out. Like Israel's supposed to say help, but that's not what took place here. And you say, why? Why are they not crying out? Why do they not do their part of the cycle? Well, we're not explicitly told. We're not told exactly, but you think about it for a second. They have been under the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. You could say like an entire generation, a whole long time they've been under that. And they didn't, in one sense, their memory was that's the way it is. They didn't know they were supposed to cry out in a sense. They maybe didn't realize that was an option. Folks, their being under that slavery, under that oppression, under that rule, may point to something we need to look at in our own lives. See, you and I can be ruled by sin. We can have the enemy of our souls over us, kind of like the Philistines over Israel, kind of forcing us down and trapping us. And if you and I live our lives entrenched in sin, guess what? That becomes normal. That's what we think life is supposed to be. But here's the deal. Just because it feels normal doesn't mean it's good. One of the things we need to understand, one of the things we need to realize is if we're entrenched in sin, we're entrenched in death. That's a strong statement, but we need to understand, without the Lord Jesus, without Jesus in my life, I am dead. I'm trapped in a way that is off the charts trapped. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, the Apostle Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit to say some pretty strong words that we need to hear. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." Please understand, without Jesus, we are in a very desperate situation. To jump back to Judges 13, Israel was in a desperate situation. 40 years of being oppressed, 40 years of knowing no different, they were in a terrible spot. But don't miss this. Yes, they were in a terrible spot, but God was still working, God was still moving. See, they didn't cry out. But the message of verse 2, God mentioning and drawing our attention to somebody is saying, I'm still working, I'm still moving because I am full of grace. 
Folks, freedom is possible for you and me, even when we're in a desperate situation, because God is full of grace. Maybe something you and I need to understand and grasp is this. God's ability to help, God's ability to bring grace and mercy into your life is greater than your ability to ask for help. In fact, it's not even dependent upon your ability to ask. He can move even when you and I don't know what to do. How or why is freedom possible? Reason number one, freedom is possible because God is full of grace and he wants to pour that out. Reason number two, that freedom is possible is because God does miracles. God can do miracles. Let me say some things that are obvious. Okay, failure or being dead is bad. Okay, I don't think we'd have to debate that. Another thing that's fairly obvious. We can't change being in those positions. We can't change being trapped there. But please understand, God is not limited. God is not limited. Verses 2 and 3 of Judges 13. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Into the hopelessness of Manoah and his wife, who we never get her name, into their hopelessness, God brings hope. That really is one of the specialties of God. In the midst of something that seems hopeless, he brings hope. He has the ability to do that. He can do miracles. Now, here's the thing. There's repetition in verse 2 and 3. you really like, what was this lady's issue? Well, she was barren and couldn't have children. And it wasn't just said once. It was repeated. It was emphasized. It was drawn attention to. Why? Not because of her issue, because of that was a challenge, but to tell her, you know what? God's working. God's going to change that. God's going to move and bring a miracle. That's a pretty amazing thing. But then we also got to face the fact, you know what? She's never named. We don't know her name. Now, there's a couple of things. Those combined together make me think there's maybe an implication. I look around the room, and I'm not meaning to be insulting, okay? Don't, don't take offense at this. But most of us in this room, most people probably watching online, are just average people. We're just folks. Now, some of you, there may be a few of you that are like Sioux City famous. It's an expression my daughter uses. You know, you're Sioux City famous. Great. But you cross a river or a county line, and that maybe doesn't amount to much. And it's not an impossibility that some of us may feel like nobody knows my name, and I'm kind of forgotten. And if I'm forgotten and nobody knows my name, you know, I don't know about you, but I was one of those kids. I don't, like, back when I was a kid, they used to cut kids from sports teams. You know, you wanted to be on this side. You wanted to be on the team. And the coach says, you know, better luck next year. Or 
Perhaps you should consider other opportunities. <laughs> and you can feel like, I'm, I'm over here. I'm, I'm a failure. I'm forgotten. But what does God do with forgotten people? People whose names no one seems to remember. God does miracles in their lives. Why is freedom possible? Because God does miracles in the lives of forgotten people. Reason number three, why is freedom possible? Because God has a freedom plan. God has a freedom plan. God's grace and power come together to accomplish a plan of God so that we can experience and know freedom. Now, there's something interesting to me about when the Bible draws attention to the birth of a baby. And I think this is true. Every time the Bible draws special attention to the birth of a baby, like here in Judges 13, it's always seemed to be tied to the unfolding of God's freedom plan. More of God's plan is going to unfold. Verses 4 and 5. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And notice this. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. She doesn't have a name, but I'm just going to call her Mrs. Manoah because it feels funny to say the woman that's unnamed. Okay, so Mrs. Manoah was given very specific instructions by the angel of the Lord. And she was also told, she was let in on, she was given a declaration of God's freedom plan. In essence, her miraculous son was going to be a part of a start to move toward freedom. Now, the word begin in verse 5 kind of tells us Samson, will, that's who this baby is, we'll get his name in a little bit. Samson was going to be as part of the starting of God removing the Philistines over Israel. In essence, he was going to free them, save them. Samson started that process. He doesn't end it. Okay, He starts it, and then if you continue reading in your Bibles, you'll find out that Samuel was then a part of that process. And then Saul and Jonathan are a start of that process. And then finally, saves Israel ultimately out of the Philistines, comes to a guy named David. All of them were a part of this process. God's freedom plan unfolding. And the tie to David is important for us to understand because David then actually ties us to Jesus, to the one who will bring the greatest freedom, the one who will deliver us ultimately and completely. God does that. You know what? Freedom is possible. Why? Because God has grace and power, and he uses them to fulfill his plan. God's grace and power make sure his plan's carried out. Please know this this morning. Freedom is possible for you and me. Why? Because God is full of grace. Because God can do miraculous things. And because God has a plan. He's not making this up. He knows what he's doing. Now, here's the thing. It's one thing to know those things, okay, to know that God can bring freedom. You can experience it. It's another thing to experience it, not just to conceptually, okay, freedom is possible, but to actually experience us. 
And I think really what the rest of Judges 13 wants to do is to offer us two steps, two things we do so that we can experience the freedom of God. What are those steps? Step number one is this, complete submission to God. If we want to experience freedom, it involves complete submission to God. Now, there's some oddities in Judges 13. One of those oddities is that God, in the form of the angel of the Lord, so the Lord Jesus in a pre-incarnate appearance, shows up twice in Judges 13 to Mrs. Manoah, and the second time she shows up, or he comes, her husband is also there. Manoah gets in on the deal. Now, that's kind of an odd thing. They have this incredible experience of meeting the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus twice, and he promises them that they're going to have a son both times. They do this miraculous thing. In essence, God was going to bless them, bless their son. It's like, wow, look at what God is promising. That's not really odd. That's just an amazing thing. But here's the thing. God then delivers on that promise. Look at the very, well, almost the very end of the chapter. Chapter 13, verse 24 of Judges. Okay? God had promised this, and guess what happens? And the woman bore a son. That's amazing. Now here's where some oddity and some head scratching comes in and called his name Samson. And the young man grew and the Lord blessed him. God does these amazing, makes these amazing promises and gives them a son. And how do they respond? Well, they name him Samson. And you're like, so? Well, here's where I think it's odd. Samson is a name connected to the Canaanite sun god. They were blessed off the charts by God. And how do they respond? They name their kid after a pagan god. Okay, Israel was not in a good place. They were not necessarily spiritually where they should be. That makes you scratch your head. Another thing that kind of makes us scratch our head is God seems to be calling them to live not like their pagan neighbors and like the country they were living in, but to live in a distinct way. Look again at verses 4 and 5 with me. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come on his head. For he, the child, sorry, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Now, a Nazarite, what we learn, that's a vow someone could make. And in number six, it tells us about the Nazarite vow. That was a vow that a man or a woman could voluntarily make for a little while. Short time period, kind of a, a way of expressing some measure of commitment to God, but it was for a short time. But God is calling here in Judges 13 for a lifetime commitment. Not just a little bit, but forever. Why? Well, folks, I, I think the answer to that is experiencing freedom, the freedom God offers, it doesn't come from dabbling in the things of God. It comes through completely turning your life over to him and trusting him, submitting to him. We experience freedom when we completely submit our lives to God. Now let me unpack why that is the case. Think about this. To make freedom possible for you and me, 
required Jesus to go to the cross and to die in our place for our sins. It took his whole life so you and I could be free. Freedom is not an accessory you add to complete an outfit. Freedom is a life that is embraced by giving yourself fully to God. It's about turning away from sin and failure, saying, I don't want that anymore, and I want to turn in repentance and trust the Lord Jesus to the one who loves me. It's a complete turning of our lives. A New Testament passage that I think helps us with this is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. We give him our whole lives because he gave his whole life for us. And we are only alive because of what he did for us. Well, that might raise a question. I mean, what does it look like to live a life of submission? For him to completely submit to God, what does it look like? Well, that's where step two comes in. And step two is this. Live trusting God. A life of submission means I'm going to live trusting God. Submission, really, if submission's going to happen, it requires trust. It requires dependence on him. But it's not always easy for us to trust. It's not always easy for us to depend. Now, Mrs. Manoa seems to get that trusting is what she needs to do, and she seems to be good with it. Look at verses 6 and 7 with me. Then the woman came and told her husband, a man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of an angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name, but he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, so then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Okay, she's like, I believe this, let's get, let's get going on this. But Manoah, maybe like a lot of us, he was having trouble on the trust front, embracing. In one sense, he was having a whole lot of trouble accepting what his wife said. That's a dangerous place, man. We're not having marriage counseling, but maybe that's what we need to hear this morning. Look at what he does in verse 8. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent Come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. Now, interesting, the name Manoah means resting place. I don't think he's very restful at this point. I think, quite honestly, inside of him, he's kind of praying from a place of struggle and insecurity. And even though God does come again, and God does come again, shows up the second time, that's not enough for Manoah. That doesn't calm him or settle him down. In essence, when God comes, Manoah's like, I need more information. If I'm going to trust, you've got to give me more details. And in short, if you want to paraphrase verses 12 to 14 that we'll read in just a second, God's answer is, you have enough. 
You have everything you need. The verses read this way. And Manoah said, Now, when your words come true, what is the child, what is to be the child's manner of life, and what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat any unclean thing. All that I commanded her, let her observe. When he's saying, you've got what you need. What does Manoah respond? He's not satisfied. And so as the account continues, he's instead of trusting and enjoying the freedom that's found in that, he, he, he tries to put on a display of hospitality. He, in essence, says, hey, we're going to have a potluck after church. Join me. That was a bad example because, really, he was doing hospitality because he was trying to create an obligation. If you come, I am not trying to create an obligation, Okay. But that's what he was doing, create an obligation. And the angel of the Lord says, uh, no, thank you, I'm, I'm not hungry. I don't need this. And so then Manoah asks, you know, what is your name? And he's not doing that so that he can greet him and know him face to face. He's doing that because he wants control. See, you and I can do a whole lot of things before we ever get around to trusting. Please know this, though. You can struggle in your trusting. I can struggle in my trusting. But guess what? God knows we struggle. God knows Manoah was struggling. And so what does he do? He reveals himself to Manoah profoundly. Verses 19 to 21. So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. He had this amazing experience. You think, he saw, I mean, he looked what he knows. And you think, oh, he's going to trust now. But you know what? Manoah was so tied up inside. Instead of trusting, he was caught in fear. And he was trapped. He wasn't able to trust. But God in his grace put Mrs. Manoah in his life. Wives, if you want to elbow your husbands right now, that's between you and God, I guess. But she got the bless. She blessed him and said, hang on a second here, dude. You can trust this God. Verses 22 and 23. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen. Sorry, we. Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. His wife said to him, If the Lord meant to kill us, he would not have accepted our burnt offering and the grain offering at our hands, or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such as these. It's hard to trust, but Manoah, you can do it. You know, if you and I are going to experience the freedom God offers us, it really does mean we need to completely submit ourselves to God, and to completely submit ourselves to God means we live our lives trusting God. But maybe like Manoah, you and I struggle with that. 
Maybe we think that, you know what, hey, this is how it should operate with God. I should scratch God's back if he scratches mine. Like, create that obligation thing. Or maybe, you know, if I'm going to have a relationship with somebody, I've got to have control. I remember talking to somebody once, and they told me they always pre-planned all the conversations they were going to have at large gatherings. And I'm thinking, I wonder how well that goes. Because I don't think people are like button, like you push your button and get the exact answer all the time. See, if, if, if people, our relationships with each other don't really operate very well at obligation or control, how is it ever going to work with the Lord God Almighty? See, folks, you and I don't relate to God on our terms. We need to relate to God according to his terms, and his terms are submission and trust. So how can we deal with our struggle to do those things? How can we do that? Let me just offer you three observations about God that I think help us, move us to trust and submit. Okay, one, what would one be? God's awesome. Okay, God is awesome. Look at verse 6 with me again. And the woman came and told her husband, a man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of an angel of God. Very awesome. Okay, Mrs. Manoa did not know everything about God at this point. But what she saw was he was awesome. Folks, I think part of what can stir us and move us to a place of submitting to God and trusting him is when we see his awesome beauty and love. And maybe the way for us to do that, maybe an exercise we need to engage in repeatedly is we need to ponder the cross and ponder what Jesus did on the cross for us. And then we need to ponder the empty tomb and the life that he offers us. I think the cross and the empty tomb can move us to trust. Why? Because God's awesome. Two, another observation about God. Is God answers doubters' prayers. He answers the prayers of people that doubt. Okay, in verse 8, Manoah prayed. What happens in verse 9? And God listened to the voice of Manoah. And the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. You know what? God knew that Manoah was struggling. God knows you and I struggle. And he answered Manoah's prayer. Please don't miss the implication of that. We can struggle. And yet God is willing and able to do things to help us and to move us through our struggles. So God is awesome. God answers doubters' prayers. And then number three, God is wonderful. God is wonderful. In, in response to Manoah asking God's name, God responds in verse 18 this way. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name? Seeing it is wonderful. Now the idea of wonderful is that God is beyond us. Now, part of what that means is God plays life at a level you and I will never reach. He's way above us. He is beyond us. He's greater than us. But the Bible would also tell us, even though all those things are true, he's way above us. He's for us. 
God's for us. He's for Manoah, even in his struggle. We have three granddaughters. And one of the things I noticed, especially with the older two, the youngest one is five and a half months. Uh, but our older two granddaughters, they, they love their daddies. And they will throw themselves off of anything possible at their daddies so their daddies will catch them. Like, why? Why do they do that? They're going to hurt themselves. I'm getting old. I get concerned about these things. But you know why they do it? Why these little girls do that? Because in their eyes, their daddies are strong and big. And they are. And they'll catch them. See, they recognize, look at this one. Look at my daddy. He'll catch me. So I'm going to trust him. We can do the exact same thing. Let me try to wrap this up by offering sort of two application questions for you and I to think through today and, and really this week so we can experience that freedom. And the questions are really simple. Number one, is are you living in submission to God? Are you living in submission to God? No, that starts, okay, to live in submission with God starts to, by repenting of your sins and trusting Jesus alone as your Savior, okay? If you haven't done that, then none of the rest of this freedom stuff is possible. It starts there. You need to trust Christ. So have you? It's a question you need to look in the mirror and say, have I done that? No, it doesn't end there because that submission isn't just there. No, that submission's meant to penetrate down into us. It's meant to impact each part of our lives. So things like, where is God in your financial life? Are you submitting your financial life to him? That means God calls us to do certain things like give. So where is giving compared to spending? It's a good question of, am I living in freedom? Am I living in submission? Maybe another way, another area is to say, you know what? If I'm in submission to God, am I living by God's sexual ethics? We live in a world that says a lot of things about what I should do with myself sexually, but God says very different things. Or if I'm going to live in submission to God, maybe it becomes an issue of, what am I doing? related to that tough person in my life? Am I forgiving that person? And I'm going to bet almost every single one of us has a that person. If I'm living in submission to God, I bring forgiveness. Question number one, am I submitting to God? Question number two, am I trusting God? Part of that... Wrestling through that might mean I just, we need to sit down and say, what is keeping me from trusting God? Why would I be hesitant to trust Him? Is it because I need to have control? Is it because I, I think I need more evidence? I mean, what is it? Ask yourself, ask the Spirit of God to bring clarity in your own mind is what would keep you from trusting God with what's in front of you this week? Freedom is possible. 
because of God. And you and I can experience God's freedom if we would submit to him and if we would trust him. Are you? Are you? Would you pray with me? Father, I am grateful to you for the incredible hope that you bring into our lives. The hope and the joy and the delight. Father, I would pray that we would recognize that you alone offer freedom. And I would pray that not only would we see the freedom, but that we would experience it. Lord, you are the one that's awesome. You are the one that meets us in our doubts. And you are the one that's wonderful. You're beyond us. You're above us. And yet you are for us. I pray. Lord, would you lead us to submit to you? Would you lead us to trust? Would you lead us to know your blessing? Father, thank you for your word this morning and what it can do in our lives. Father, I pray you might use your word not just in our lives individually, but maybe even collectively. Maybe as we share in lunch together, that it would touch us, that your word would be a part of our conversation. Lord, we thank you that we can gather like that, and we pray we would know your presence as we do. In the very precious name of the Savior, we pray.